Hello, and thanks as always for listening to The Tully Show. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation you're about to hear between me and scholar and author Jennifer S. Light. This was a very, very fun one for me to both research and to uh, to record. But first, your brief weekly reminder, if you're listening to and enjoying The Tully Show, the fun that you could have listening to me blabber into a microphone has barely begun. I am talking about patreon.com slash Mike Tully. All sorts of things happening on Patreon. I'm finding all sorts of ways to amuse myself and hopefully others over there. On top of all the usual features, in the past week alone, I did a standalone podcast on why, although Morrissey is a weird, kind of creepy dude, you might love his band, the band that put him on the musical map, The Smiths. And I talked to comedian Stephen Glickman about his role as Prince the Dog, a.k.a. Alvin Flang, in the 2011 cinematic disaster piece Love on a Leash, one of my favorite horrible movies and as i'd hoped the story of the making of at least as ridiculous as the movie itself all that and more happening at my patreon patreon.com slash mike tully hope to see you there during week 82 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, our second MIT professor guest in the last three months alone, and the author of a fascinating book about a fascinating and mostly forgotten chapter of U.S. history entitled States of Childhood, from the Junior Republic to the American Republic, 1895 to 1945. Hello and welcome, Jennifer S. Light. Hi. Thank you for joining me here today. It is a pleasure speaking to you. It's great to uh, get to talk about this totally weird, uh, but I think fascinating topic. It is weird and it is fascinating. And it's one of these things that when you when it comes on your radar, you go, how have I never heard of this before? And it was a little serendipitous for me because I found myself wondering recently, I have an aunt and uncle in my family in New Jersey, and I always knew when I was growing up that to get to their house, you make a right at Boys Town. And I just knew that. They live right by Boys Town. And at a certain point, I swear, a month ago, I said, wait a second, what the heck was Boys Town? And shortly thereafter, my computer, some Microsoft program, directed me to uh, a, a, something about your book, and I read a little sample of it. And here we are talking about your book. How did you become aware of this topic? So one of the great things about being a historian is that you get to, you know, indulge your curiosity. And after I became a parent, um, you know, you read all these parenting manuals and it tells you, well, this is how you raise a good kid. And, um, you know, putting on my historian's hat, I realized, wait a second, it wasn't always this way. You know, 100 years ago, we're sending the eight-year-olds out to sell newspapers or to the coal mines. And so I just started reading these books about 
the history of what it was like to be a kid in the U.S. at different times. And um, the funny thing about all these books is they all had one sentence about this guy named William George, who created a miniature United States for kids in upstate New York in the 1890s. But it was always basically just a sentence. And frankly, that's how I get my ideas for books as I see one sentence in one book and it cross references the one sentence in one book, you know, another book. And I just think there's got to be something interesting here. Uh, and it turns out there was a ton uh, interesting about these things that nobody seemed to have heard of, myself included. Right. So I think to the extent that I had thought about the same subject you're talking about, I had this idea, right? I know there's a book that I've never read called The Invention of Childhood. And I know that children after industrial uh, industrialization all worked in factories. And then at some point, Victorians uh, made enough money that they thought it would be nice to put presents under Christmas trees and to let their and to give their children toys. And then the baby boom happened. And here we are. And it turns out there's this incredibly critical and I don't want to call it bizarre because despite having spent a, a fair amount of time with your book, I'm still not sure I exactly understand what was going on. But there's this middle chapter to that story that I just told that doesn't really seem to fit in all that naturally. So, all right, I'll do my best to give you a short version of the 400-page book, which is basically, right, how did yeah. we get from kids in the coal mines to kids that were afraid to let, you know, walk down the street by themselves? Right. So, I mean, essentially, this is a story about how do you change social behavior and how do you change social norms and there's a few different ways you can do that you can be coercive you can have laws uh banning kids from going to work or requiring them to go to school through you know age 16 or the eighth grade for example but then there are the more um invisible ways that you change norms which is expectations um uh what scholars talk about is like the internalization of discipline. So when we see people, you know, peer norms, people acting in a certain way, for better or for worse, we imitate it. And so the idea of the junior republic, um, if you can think back to a time when uh, reformers are trying to get kids out of the labor force, out of political life, because if you can believe it, um, Kids were involved in politics back in those days. Um, it is, what does that mean exactly? So many gangs essentially did political work for different parties, especially in New York City. Uh, it could be uh, everything from making sure people went out to vote to um, to roughing other people up. I mean, uh, there you know, there's a whole scholarly thing about that, um, and then. Sure. And kids also worked in any number of jobs, which we now might think of as civil service appointments like um, police and detective work. So this is this is like the baseline culture that reformers like exactly like you said, with industrialization, think, well, you know, does it have to be this way? Um, and, and the change is happening for any number of reasons. If you think about um, what was the function of the family, it was uh, an economically productive unit. So, you know, you could have a farm family or a family that uh, 
was blacksmiths or, you know, whatever. Um, with industrial jobs, parents aren't able to train kids for the jobs of the future like they used to be able to. And so schooling becomes a lot more appealing. So there's like all these things going on simultaneously. <laughs> so let me actually answer the question you asked about why junior republics. So this idea of creating miniature worlds where kids were the politicians, the journalists, the farmers, the barbers, and so on and so forth, were these really interesting, like middle range solutions. They weren't um, kids actually going out uh, on, you know, the dangerous streets of New York City and selling newspapers, but within a adult supervised world, they could get the experience of doing something fun. And essentially the conceit was train for future jobs. And so this was sort of an interstitial moment between the kids out on the street or kids in the labor force and you know where we've gotten to in recent decades. But a fairly prolonged interstitial moment. Obviously, it had its heyday and and then lingered for a while. But you're talking about a 50 year period of time. This this was still going on when my dad was a kid. This is not ancient history. What so so people just so people know exactly what we're talking about. I think this is a quote from your book. So if at the turn of the century in Freeville, New York, there was a miniature republic staffed by citizens aged 14 to 21, and I'm going to ask you to clarify exactly what. Every single word in the following paragraph means they constructed buildings and swimming pools. They ran hotels and restaurants. They printed newspapers and currency. They opened juvenile libraries, museums, gardens, organized co-op stores and charities. That was very philanthropic of these teenagers. They performed in theaters. They administered hospitals and schools of law. There's a picture in your book of a, a child barber shaving a child. There's another picture in your book of a child in prison garb doing hard labor. It's crazy. What were they doing? I mean, it's totally <laughs> weird. That, that is why I loved this project. And as a side note, I have children and I loved showing these pictures to my children. Like, oh. you don't know how good you've got it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, okay. So all the things that you were listing off, they were not all features of a single republic. That is sort of the okay. spectrum of types of things that kids decided to do in these miniature worlds. Um, some, but not all, had token economies. And so the kids who worked as printers, one of their jobs was to print a currency. Um, the other kids ran a bank where you could save money, withdraw it, and so on and so forth. They, you know, created interest systems. Some of these were based on the gold standard. Others, uh, you know, changed their value depending on what was happening in the Republic economic system. Some literally, Proto -Ron did, yeah, some literally did have schools of law because, uh, as I alluded to before, the kids are playing all the political roles. So they are the court judges. They are the probation officers. They are the legal, you know, the legal team for the defense and the prosecution. And so kids actually were motivated to study law and uh, other kids realized they could make some money teaching classes and so you know set up a little school and there were there were 
thousands of these in America. There were thousands of these in America. Right. Now, there's a distinction between the independently operating organizations like the George Jr. Republic, which was in upstate New York. It was basically if you walked across the territory of the Republic, you'd think you were maybe on a college campus or in a tiny village. Um, it wasn't obviously an institution. And that was by design because William George, who uh, was in charge of it, thought, you know, this is like a virtual world that's going to train kids for the real world. If we make it look like anything but the real world, it's not going to serve its function. Um, but then there were many others that got attached to existing schools and youth serving institutions, everything from orphanages to settlement houses to boys and girls clubs. And those often didn't have the sense of like an expansive campus, um, but maybe a school would create a government and each classroom would be a district and the school, you know, school wide, it would, it would be a Republic. And uh, at that time, because of the influences of the Republic movement, it's interesting. Um, student governments looked a lot more like mirrors of Congress uh, and mirrors of our political system. And they had things like street cleaning departments and the kids were responsible for, you know, picking up after each other. We don't do that now, but, but that's all connected to the Republic movement. At the risk of putting too fine a point on it, was the kid barber actually shaving the other kid, in your opinion? Were there blades involved? <laughs> Were there blades involved? Probably because there was a kid militia, too, and they did have uh, weaponry. So I will say that is a faded photo and the kid being shaved look way too young to have facial hair. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. That occurred to me. That did occur to me that, it, that they had to be play acting to some extent because I'm sure that kid was not old enough to shave. But uh, that kid looked like he knew what he was doing with whatever <laughs> implement was was in his hand. <laughs> OK, so um, a, a couple of questions. Did the children get to choose to go to these places or were they herded up there? Did they live there for the summer or did they go home at night or ever? Could they leave if they so chose? Those are great questions. So um, the, the answers are mixed. Um, one of the things oh. that I found that was really interesting is that because very quickly uh, two things occurred in the Republic movement as people are watching what happened at the George Jr. Republic and elsewhere. One, it was very clear that kids who were seen as likely to cause trouble, namely immigrants and impoverished kids uh, who were, you know, associated with criminality, uh, that that they proved to be model citizens beyond reformers' wildest dreams. Okay, that, and they were having a blast um, because the uh, most severe punishment other than going into the iron cage, which was a jail, <laughs> the <Junior> Republic <laughs> was to be expelled. And, um, you know, that was the, that was seen as a harsh punishment. So, um, okay. So because of the sense that these things, you know, made good kids, um, judges actually sentenced children to time in republics when they were arrested for some sort of juvenile delinquency. 
And in those cases, sometimes there was a fixed term. But in many other cases, it was really an indeterminate term because uh, back in those days, when you gave over a child voluntarily or involuntarily to some sort of reform institution, um, it wasn't always clear how long it was going to take for them to be reformed. Uh, sometimes it depended on how much money the family or the state would put towards things. Um, yeah, so it was it was varying. But then I was just talking about all these, um, you know, spinoffs at schools and orphanages and places like that. Those were not 24 hour a day, year round experiences. There were, you know, you go to school, you might be governed by the school government. Uh, it's possible that if you didn't show up at school, the school police force would chase you down at home. But that's about it for, uh, you know, your experience. I see. I see. So the answer is that it varies. But in some cases, yes, children went there against their will, did have to stay there and did not know exactly when they were going to get out. But it does seem in general, they they liked it, right? You, obviously, this was uh, a part of the recipe of success for some of these kids that would grow up to be adults. You can see where if this is implemented properly, this could be a fantastic uh, element of somebody's upbringing and youth. And indeed, uh, future U.S. Surgeon General went through this. Mayors went through this. Steve McQueen and Jerry Stiller, Ben Stiller's yeah. dad, cre credited their later success in life in part to the time that they spent in these model communities as youths. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to be sure, I did find some examples of kids who ran away in the archives. Yeah. But um, the other thing I found was letter upon letter of, um, you know, affectionate correspondence from the children who lived in these institutions and considered William George and his wife, you know, family members. I mean, this correspondence went on for decades. And the other thing is they uh, founded alumni associations and would come back once a year. And I mean, who goes back to a reform school, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, that's a sign of, of their affection for it. And many also uh, of the graduates went into youth work. Right, which is the strongest possible uh, vote of confidence in the system is wanting to contribute to it once you're you're out of it. I mean, one of the grace notes of the book that I really enjoyed, in, in one of these communities, young ladies, females, women got the vote a full, what, 30 years ahead of widespread suffrage in among the actual electorate in America. That's exactly right. So, um, you know, we typically think of women got the vote in 1920. The truth is it's a little more complicated. So it's in some states and in some local elections, they had partial or full suffrage. And um, so... The idea initially was the Republic is going to recreate the conditions of the U.S. So, you know, girls are not going to be allowed <laughs> to vote. But uh, some of the young ladies realized they're being taxed. You know, they had to pay taxes. I mean, this is how realistic it got. Apparently, uh, they got dressed up in their finest white dresses and went to a meeting of the legislature and argued in favor. And female suffrage was granted. It was later taken away. It was later restored. Um, but the thing to me that was the most interesting is that when adult advocates of suffrage made 
public arguments, uh, sometimes they referred to the George Jr. Republic or other republics saying, you know what, if girls, you know, they're showing their capability, they're debating legislation, uh, they are model citizens, it's kind of a shame that we don't have similar powers. Well, it made me think of how, if I recall correctly from uh, pretending to have read Plato's Republic when I was in high school, I seem to recall Plato saying that the the ideal democracy was something like I don't know, a thousand people. A city's supposed to be like a thousand people, and how the system breaks down when you get where we live with over three hundred million people and this this faceless machine that you don't feel like you can personally stand up to. When I am an individual and I know the guy that I pay taxes to, and I know the guy that's mayor, and I can see that I'm getting the raw end of the deal, I know whose door to go knock on and it, it this is when i mean I, I'm, not, I'm not here to poo-poo american democracy but this is the idea of democracy a democracy and this is when democracy actually works when everybody in the community has some sense of who each other is absolutely it's really interesting that you mentioned that so um George's Republic is in upstate New York, basically an agrarian community where there are a lot of farmers. Uh, most of the population, like I said, immigrants, impoverished kids, mostly from New York City, at least initially. And one of the reasons that George decided to do it in upstate New York rather than do something in the city was because he had this vision of recreating, you know, the ideal democracy, which at this time is pretty much exactly as you're describing people who know each other, you know, there are town meetings, and it's more the sort of farmer style of democracy rather than what he saw as kind of chaos and corruption and boss rule in New York City. So it was kind of a very much idealized vision of, of how things should work. But at the same time, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it reflected this true belief in America and the American system. And it seems like, particularly in bringing immigrant children into this, it's that for our society and our body politic to move forward, these kids who come from God knows what country and God knows what system need to learn how to become citizens in America. All true. Although mm -hmm. if you think about, you know, democracy, I'd probably give you a different definition from your definition from the guy, you know, on the street. And uh, at this time, there were a lot of competing ideas about how government should work. And so back in New York City, immigrants on average um, tended to like boss rule because these patrons kind of paid attention to their needs, fulfilled them in exchange for votes. Um, George was kind of more uh, traditional conservative, had a different ideal, and so was very much focused on teaching kids that his way of doing democracy was better than other ways of doing democracy. And, you know, another way that we see this is, um, you know, this is an era when unions are getting formed um, and unions were prohibited in the George Jr. Republic and many other of its um, imitators. Um, you know, political protests were happening. And in fact, kids were very much involved in different kinds of strikes, um, you know, newsboy strikes, other political protests. 
that was really frowned upon in these particular democracies where the idea of democracy is about playing a role, following the rules, um, having, you know, courteous engagement with others. Not that there's anything, you know, good or bad. Um, we can debate that, but it was a very particular idea of how politics should work. Yeah, I was wondering. So the Communist Manifesto is written what, 1848, there, thereabouts, and then the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia is 1912, 1914, thereabouts. So this is in between those two poles. What is the, you know, I, I, I just watched an old movie uh, a Hollywood movie from the 1930s the other night where they just gratuitously threw in I hope he's not a red you know they it was very very clear that that was something that everybody wanted to make their uh, their their stance on communism as clear as possible was it as much of a bugaboo in uh, in 1900 that it would be become by say like 1935 no, I didn't really see as many references yeah. as in the 1930s when, um, you know, youth start protesting en masse. Um, I mean, we, you know, our culture remembers the 1960s as the main era of protest, but the 1930s was pretty, um, was pretty lively. And that is when a lot of young people were questioning, you know, capitalism and democracy. I see. So you mentioned that the first one is in upstate New York, which I think is where I, 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 when I started reading your book, what first came to mind was the utopian movement, which it, to me seems right. like it it sort of had its 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 heyday, its pinnacle a, a, a couple decades really before this. But I think like the Oneida people who we now think of as, you know, modestly priced but tasteful silverware, the very one <laughs> one in the same. <laughs> Oneida people, were were they in upstate New York as well? How do you see this fitting into the utopian movement? That is an awesome question. George was very, uh, William George, um, who is, you know, the figurehead of this movement, was very much outspoken. He was not creating utopian communities. He was creating realistic simulations. So there was corruption. You know, there was bribery. That's why kids ended up in jail. You know, there the, kids set things on fire, as they do. Um and he thought, you know, utopias have their function, but if we're if our goal is to train kids to succeed in the world as it is, let's make something more like that world. I see. And then another thing in terms of the theoretical underpinnings of this movement that I had a little trouble wrapping my head around is this uh, every era has their their theories that come from academia and then uh, are the psycho the psychiatric psychological world and then pass into the mainstream we've got Malcolm Gladwell and everybody goes around talking about 10,000 hours despite the fact that it's what they're saying is not what Malcolm Gladwell was getting at in the first place this era has this very popular recapitulation theory yeah as I understand it I think as you wrote about it in the book um, this theory suggested that young people reenacted the history of the human race as they matured. What the heck is that? And why do you think that was so appealing to the era? So let me just back up and say, yeah. um, you know, we like to think of science as this relatively objective thing. I think that's come under question recently. But, um, you know, in the same way that biological 
explanations of what women or racial minorities are capable of doing have changed over time. Same thing for children. And so that's the larger context for thinking about the recapitulation theory. So recapitulation theory was this idea that was popular in many sciences, embryology, um, evolutionary theory. But when applied to kids, it was basically the idea that you know, kids have normal stages of development. We think about that today. But in the recapitulation theory, the idea is kids sort of start out close to savages. That, that's the language of that day, you know, uncivilized, mm -hmm. animal, animal-like. And as they grow, they, you know, modernize, civilize themselves. But it is absolutely necessary that they move through these different stages. And so psychologists of the era often did experiments or observations on children to try to parse out, you know, is 10 to 15 the age when they are reenacting, you know, medieval chivalry and knights? <laughs> you know, Knights of the Round Table, or, um, you know, when are they closest to street gangs? That sort of, that was basically the idea. And so that ended up being pretty influential in uh, education um, and youth work more generally, because in addition to these things like that we've been talking about, republics, there were all sorts of youth organizations focused on different developmental stages. For example, the Knights of King Arthur, which dressed little boys up as, you know, members of the court of King Arthur and basically taught them how to be chivalrous. Um, and this was seen as a biological necessary stage of development. Well, sometimes you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And as the father of a, a nine-year-old, I bet the kids love that anyway. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the costumes <laughs> were fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Right? So there ended up being some sets of debates among youth workers about the question of realism. So, okay, yes, the recapitulation theory says that, you know, what we call now tweens may like to be like knights, but... No one's going to be a medieval knight in 20th century America. Maybe could we instead have them dress up as police who are like the modern version of knights? And um, you have, you know, junior police at the George Junior Republic and its many offshoots. And then many, many cities and towns created junior police forces at this time, um, constantly referring to how it was teaching character and chivalry and, you know, proper masculine behavior. And, oh, by the way, a benefit happened to be that when there weren't enough paid police officers, kids could help out. Yes, that was the very next thing I was going to ask you about. If this is a documentary, this is when we get to, but then things took a bit of a of a dark turn. And and, and and in terms of, you know, stories, this is not a very dark turn that it's about to take. But right, you have City Streets, as you write in your uh in your book, the settings for role-playing games in which kids arrested peers, adjudicated delinquency cases, and kept their, their communities clean. What does it mean exactly for a child to arrest another child in, I'm guessing, the 1930s? 
So, okay. Well, let me, let me again, provide a little context for somebody listening who may, you know, may not have read the book and hopefully will, but if they don't, now they'll know, they'll know (laughs) what we're talking about. So, Junior Republics were a thing. And um, like I said, super popular with kids. Many educators and youth workers were really curious, okay, um, and came, you know, came to watch them in action. And public officials, you know, seeing that kids are playing at their jobs also became really curious. Um, So, they decided, you know what, if it works to have kids as police and uh, jurists and street cleaners in these model societies, maybe let's try it in our cities because many public officials, educators, youth workers, parents were worried about what kids were doing with their time. You know, as we talked earlier, the programs at orphanages, well, orphanages might be a different story, but the programs in schools and boys clubs are only part of the day. What do you do about that kid hanging out on the street corner in the afternoon? Can you kind of get him into something? So that's the origin of junior police programs, junior sanitary inspectors, which were kind of like health inspectors and garbage uh, garbage picker-uppers, um, and junior juvenile courts. So what did it mean to for a kid to arrest a kid? Well, it varied locally, but um, some police forces were directly involved in mentoring and training their junior police forces. And they essentially said to kids, you know, if you see someone breaking an ordinance, um, you know, you could report them or you could try to arrest them. And obviously it depended a little bit on social norms, whether the person would comply. And there were some really funny cases that I came across of kids kind of overstepping their authority and trying to... um, arrest adults. For example, I think in 1911 or 1915 in New York City, a boy police officer tries to arrest a woman for violating a municipal ordinance and she takes him over her knees and spanks him. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, so it really depended locally. So um, one of the largest of these public republics that, you know, took over the city streets somewhere was in Milwaukee in starting in 1912. It was called the Milwaukee Newsboys Republic. And it was made up of, at that time, 4,000 and eventually 7,000 newsboys. And part of their job was uh, to essentially enforce the city's street trades laws, which stipulated who could sell newspapers, you know, you needed to be licensed, wear a badge, where you could sell them in certain districts or not, and how you could sell them, you know, uh, would you be yelling? But anyway, um, and so within this kind of simulated United States where they're also playing senators and representatives, the kids also had this job of enforcing street trades laws with the power to arrest each other with the power to try um, their peers in court. And this was amazing, economically speaking, for the city of Milwaukee, because uh, it did not at that time have the money to fund a, a team of street 
uh, in trades inspectors. So they basically delegated the authority to the kids and the kid run court saved the uh, Milwaukee juvenile court, you know, thousands of hours because it managed to figure out how to deal with minor infractions in-house. But then in some cases, what you end up with paradoxically is you have this movement that is a crusade against child labor, but it's producing child labor and particularly in in the war efforts. Ding, ding, ding. Right. (laughs) Yes. So one of the, I mean, so again, like I said, it's fun to be a historian because you get to, you know, investigate and answer the questions of interest to you. But of course, there's always surprises along the way. And this for me was the giant surprise because the story that we tell ourselves is, oh, so, you know, we removed kids from the labor force and sent them to school and these supervised youth programs. But when you actually dig down, what I thought was so thrilling about studying junior republics is you actually see that kids are still laboring, but what they're doing just gets redescribed as playful or educational. And that got me thinking, um, you know, it's very similar to women's experience um, at the same time. So I talked earlier about this economic transformation, you know, you used to work as a household, uh, but subsequently that's replaced by the industrial labor system. So households were considered by all official government measures before the industrial revolution, economically productive settings. But with the rise of wage labor and the new social expectations about women being in charge of the home, this idea of housework, which originally had the word work in it, um, you know, the idea that it has any economic value, we sort of rationalized away. Um, And there was all sorts of interesting, you know, feminist economic literature in the 70s saying, well, we call this thing not work, but obviously it helps to sustain our economy in all kinds of ways, and we could count it differently. So one of the surprises for me is, particularly in schools where kids um, did the bookkeeping made the school lunches, built the lockers, repaired the plumbing, I mean, the list goes on and on, but schools are nonprofit institutions and they're seen as the quintessential space where we take kids out of the labor force to prepare them for the future. So it, you know, what counts as work really uh, is as, as much about how we talk about it as the reality. So there was a, a, a not even an entire sentence, I guess a clause of a sentence that really uh, stuck out to me from the conclusion of the book. One of the things you say that made these uh, societies go away is, quote, changing ideals of citizenship in which consumption rather than production was a dominant value. There's quite a lot of implication and meaning packed into that. What what do you mean by that? Sure. Well, this isn't, you know, th- that particular is area is not my specialty within mm-hmm. history, but there are many eminent historians who have talked about um, 
the ideal citizen uh, shifts from being someone who goes out to make things to to someone who goes out to buy things. And if you and this is reflected in changing children's play. If you look at how children naturally played before we invented junior republics, oftentimes back to um, some recapitulation theory we were talking about, they are recreating, you know, the things that grownups did in various eras. But once you have a consumer economy made possible because of industrialization, you know, firms are creating products for different markets. One of the new markets is childhood. uh, And, uh, these places are creating all sorts of consumer objects for kids to play with and um, and adults too. And so fundamentally, I mean, that's as, as quick and dirty a sketch as I can give you about the shift to, you know, what does it mean to be an American? It's about buying things and supporting our economy. You know, of course, People are still making things, but that becomes a lot uh, less important and it changes how kids play with the result that going into a world where they are going to, um, you know, learn how to dig a ditch or make hats or whatever doesn't really seem as appealing to kids. And that was part of why junior republics were so popular at the time, because they were in many ways fun for kids and in also kind of like the things kids naturally did when they played. And then the way it has always been explained to us, to me, is then you have the post-war boom and, you know, Rebel Without a Cause in a film class I took in high school was explained to me as it's the first generation of kids who didn't have to get after-school jobs. And so you trace even uh, the hippies. These are the proto-hippies. They had all afternoon and evening to get up to whatever trouble they wanted to. They had enough money to go and get a milkshake. And they had cars so they could go be private with one another if they were going to go to a necking spot or, or something like that. And so this wasn't, this is probably an inevitable function of the growing wealth of the United States that the, the kids don't have to go somewhere and make a hat They're They get an allowance and they can buy a hat. Absolutely. Right. It's a, it's the, the intersection between the changing economic picture and then the changing social norms. I mean, I can't quote you the exact figures, but it was a very small number of kids who went all the way through high school uh, in the 1880s, for example, but by World War II, you know, that was the norm. There was a peer culture, there was a huge peer consumer culture, and uh, it was just more acceptable to do all the things you just described. And then the thread from your book to the present day is that as we asked young people to do less, we came to believe that they were capable of of doing less. And so you end up with the more sheltered child. And this brings us all the way back to the original reasons why you started 
investigating this subject. I remember reading some article about something somewhere, some, you know, what we'll call like a, you know, a primitive tribe. It's one of these few tribes that's still cut off from human civilization and where somebody follows the people around and they see the family, one family, a nuclear family goes for a little trip down river for whatever reason. And they bring a friend and she's like six years old. And as soon as they get there without even having to ask her to, she just goes off and starts collecting firewood. She knows that's what's expected of her. And she knows how to do it and she doesn't need to be supervised in doing it and it's it's trite and it's easy to say that kids have it too easy nowadays but it's hard to escape the conviction that kids don't need to have it as easy as we have made it for them i mean i think i think the you know overarching message is both our cultural norms and even the science that reinforces them, you know, it changes over time. And a really important question to ask is, does it have to be this way? Why do we think these certain things about kids? And uh, to, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about another uh, way in which this story persists and perhaps an unexpected uh, way is, you know, getting back to this idea of what counts as value. Um, I used to be, before I was at MIT, I was a professor at Northwestern. I was very popular with the football team. I had a lot of, and I had a lot of athletes in my classes. And um, I became aware through conversations with them about how they generate, you know, incredible financial resources for their institution and yet they are students, not employees. There were all sorts of restrictions on, for example, when a video game company came and scanned someone's body, they could not get paid for it. I thought that was insane. Even after they're out of college, um, if they're still in the game, they still can't get paid for it. So, you know, it was actually, to be frank, my conversations with athletes that got me thinking about this thing that ended up being central to the book is, um, you know, why do we call some things education? Why do we call some things work? Uh, it's a lot more complicated. I mean, so it's been exciting to see the public discussions about possibly remunerating student athletes more than they are currently compensated. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll see where that all goes. Yeah. Well, I, 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 as somebody who's never, I, I follow pro sports and they've never had a college team. To me, it's just so blatantly obvious since I don't have any, any stake in the situation. It's, it's um, uh, there's a lot of words to describe the, you know, the process by which quote unquote amateur athletes who somehow are able to, they can play a, a nationally televised game at, 2 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, and yet they're still students. I, I'm, I'm not telling right. you anything you don't already know. So I guess the final thing that I was thinking about um, going through your book, States of Childhood, was <clears throat> what was lost when these junior republics went away. It seems that our culture, it, well, nothing did replace them. So the, the question was, what do you do to get kids from utter dependence to adulthood and our world's answer to that is you send them to school and afterwards maybe they are in sports or activities and maybe they have some chores around the house this beautifully elaborate answer was to put them in fake human societies where they could pretend to be to be barbers but we something is lost when we we don't have any new customs that replace those old ones you know you know you you have uh 
worked at, as far as I know, you know, prestigious universities. I don't know. I've never spent time at MIT or Northwestern. I went to Fordham University College. I forget which one we are in the Bronx. In the scheme of things, considered a a better kind of it's school. Cool. Right. Yeah. It was. It was instant ramen and how many times can I refill my red solo cup at the all you can drink night on Tuesday night at the bar and then you're a graduate go get a job so mm-hmm. it's sort of comical to talk about the methodology that was put in place a hundred years ago but it's been replaced by absolutely nothing expect in my opinion and this is cynical but honestly it was my experience allowing people to be children until they're 21 years old and then asking them to flip a switch so, gosh, if I had the perfect answer to your question, I yeah. would be rich at this right. point. I guess what I would say is I've seen in some educational circles discussions about reviving and modernizing vocational education um, because that's certainly part of the Junior Republic story, and it's certainly a more obvious connection between school and, you know, the real world. Um but there is kind of something in our contemporary world that does at least remind me of junior republics, which is the virtual worlds that learning scientists are designing um, to kind of give kids the opportunity. Sometimes they're democratic systems. Sometimes they're more about, you know, economics, um, the opportunity to sort of take action have consequences without, you know, the real world consequences of losing $5,000 in the stock market. And a very similar argument is being made by these learning scientists to the psychologists of, you know, 1895, which is, well, this is what kids are normally doing for fun. They're playing video games. So let's make these things educational. And hey, we're in the digital economy. So, you know, these things in virtual settings, maybe they'll have payoff ultimately. So I think uh, it's not the perfect answer to your question, but I mean, there are things going on in the real world and then also in in virtual worlds. but I look forward to seeing how we do answer that question because it's really important. It, it for sure is. Well, thank you for your time. Congratulations. I, I studied history in school and I love history and I can only imagine the joy in discovering this thing and, 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 and finding out indeed there is for sure there's a whole entire book there. So congratulations on finding it and congratulations on writing the book on this movement. The book is called States of Childhood from the Junior Republic to the American Republic, 1895 to 1945. Can we tell people the book is available to read online for free? Is that a bad thing? Yes, I'm so glad you said it. I don't wanna make money. I'm just interested in having conversations with people about the topic. So via MIT Press, there's open access. You can download the whole thing and uh, look at the crazy pictures if you don't wanna read (laughs) the several hundred pages. I look forward to hearing from anyone uh, with questions or comments. Uh, Jennifer S. Light, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you.